Thank you so much for being here. Uh, of course, normally Pastor Rich is up here, so uh, thankful that he's having some time away on vacation. Please continue to pray for him and Valerie. They would have a good, safe trip and be able to actually relax. I think that's really important. They go nonstop while they're here, so hopefully they can enjoy um, and be able to actually uh, kick back and relax a little bit. Um, so tonight we'll be uh, skipping the global update. I don't have a global update for you, uh, but we are going to get right into our Bible study, Acts chapter 13. So I'm excited about this. It's actually a really exciting passage. Of course, I think every passage in Acts um, is pretty exciting, but we're going to see some really exciting things start to happen um, and some things start to emerge as far as the growth of the church and the spread of the gospel across the Mediterranean world um, as Paul goes out, Paul and Barnabas. And um, so we'll get into those details. Uh, Pastor Rich has made this a staple here that we do peel God's word one passage at a time. And all what he means by that is we, we do verse by verse expository preaching and teaching. Um, sometimes we talk about topical things, but we always base it on scripture. So that is our source of authority, um, it's our source of teaching and wisdom and uh, a- application, practical wisdom, application for our lives. So that's our goal. And of course, we have been now several weeks, a few months actually, in the book of Acts. And it's been an exciting uh, journey so far. So uh, please open up your Bibles to Acts 13 and uh, we'll get started. Let's go ahead and offer a prayer up to the Lord, ask him to bless our time. Father, we thank you, Lord, for all those that have gathered here tonight. Thank you for safety bringing us here. Thank you for those that are able to watch online. I pray that you would just be with our study, Lord, as we open your word together. I pray, Lord, that the uh, the truth and the clarity of scripture would just be a blessing to us. Lord, help it to challenge us in, in the ways that um, only you can do. Please speak to our hearts through your through your word as we learn. And may you be glorified in everything that's said and done tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 13, some pretty exciting things begin to happen. Um, We've been building up to this point. And what you think of, at least what I think of when I look at the book of Acts oftentimes, is those missionary journeys uh, of Paul and Barnabas and Silas and all all the others that traveled with him, uh, including Luke. Um, remember Luke is our author here he's already written part one and that is the gospel of Luke to his friend Theophilus and now he's writing this second section the second part this is part two of two uh, the book of Acts and describing and some of it uh, will not be tonight in Acts 13 but some of it is written in first person so Luke himself experiences and writes uh, from the first person position so watch for that as we get into of the book of Acts that he was um, an eyewitness of many of the things that he's writing about here. So uh, as we open up Acts 13, we're in Antioch. Remember, there are many Antiochs. We're going to look at another Antioch tonight. Um, But this is Antioch in Syria, and we'll be looking at some maps and things tonight to help us get a, a good idea of the geography and locations of these cities. So the church, remember, starts down in Jerusalem. That's kind of the mother church. Um, at the beginning of the church age. Jesus ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and the apostles start to go out and proclaim and preach the gospel of Christ. And the church begins to grow, and there's all kinds of growing pains that go along with that, and a lot of really exciting things and some, some really serious, sobering things happen. Um, and it starts there in the hub, right in Jerusalem. 
And just as Jesus said in Acts 1.8, it was, it was going to expand it. And that was his plan to start in Jerusalem, then move out into Judea, the region around the city of Jerusalem, then to Samaria. And we've already seen that. And today we're going to see it going even farther into the uttermost parts of the earth. So the mother church down in Jerusalem, it's still there at this point in time. Um, Peter and, and the other apostles are there and they're um, leading that church and uh, teaching and growing that church. But another church has formed north of Israel up in Syria in the city of Antioch. And so um, the last chapter we saw Antioch and we looked at um, some of the diversity of that city and how God was using that to grow the church. And so a lot of exciting things are happening up in Antioch. Uh, Barnabas goes and recruits a guy by the name of Saul of Tarsus, and he says, come on, and we're, we're growing. We need more helpers here in Antioch. So that's where we step into Acts 13.1. The church is growing. Uh, the leadership team is growing, and we're going to look at them here in a moment. But I just wanted to remind us where we were geographically, but also as far as the history of the church itself. It's growing. It's exciting. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of things happening. And so let's look together at Acts 13. One says this. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And then it gives a listing of the prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So you have this five-man preaching and teaching team. These are uh, elders in this church. They are teachers. They are leaders. Um, And so notice the diversity, though, among the leadership of this church. Uh, Look look at the, and and some of it's not as evident in the text, and we'll talk about some of the backgrounds of these men. And it's really remarkable that these guys from all these diverse backgrounds came together and worked as one um, in, in this church. So you have Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jew. Anyone remember where Barnabas was born? Where is he from? Anyone? We're going to go there tonight. It's an island called Cyprus. So Barnabas was a Cypriot. He was from Cyprus, and, but he was also a Jew. So he's a Jewish man. Uh, notice that Barnabas is listed first in the order. Um, that tends to be important in the Bible. When you have a listing of names, uh, generally those listed first are in positions of leadership. Um, and we'll look at some examples of that as well. So you have Barnabas, the Jew from Cyprus. Simeon, is next. He was also a Jewish man, um, but he had this Latin nickname. It says he was also called Niger. This not only indicates that he was of dark complexion, but also that he moved in Roman circles. So he he was not a typical Jew. Um, he with this this Latin nickname indicated that he he was friends with Romans. He he. Um, uh, remember, Latin was the language used in the Roman Empire. Now, Greek was used as well, um, but Latin was still used heavily within the empire. And so he has this nickname that tells us uh, he was not a typical Jew. You have this other man named Lucius um, of Cyrene. Um, he could be the Simon of Cyrene who carried Christ's cross. I'm sorry, that was Niger. Could be the Simon of Cyrene. Some people debate um, if that was true. Lucius was from Cyrene in North Africa. And then Menaean had high context. 
he had been reared with Herod the Tetrarch. So this, remember uh, a couple weeks ago, Pastor Rich went through all the different Herods and the line of Herod, starting with Herod the Great, and you had his sons and, and grandsons ruling and reigning, um, keeping that Her- Herodian name. So this uh, Herod the Tetrarch was actually Herod Antipas. He is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. And um, he is the one that Jesus stood before at his trial right before he was crucified. So this is the Herod that treated him so shamefully. Um, and the uh, pastor had that chart of the Herodian family that um, we can see. Um, then it, it talks about this Menaean who was raised with him. So this phrase, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, um, literally means he was nursed by the same nurse. Um, so Menaean and Herod Antipas were, grew up in the same nursery. They, they grew up going to the same school. They grew up almost like brothers, uh, so to speak. And, and um, what a contrast when you consider where the divergence went between these two guys. One ends up um, following Christ becoming a believer and is a teacher in leadership at the church of Antioch, the other ends up an antagonist and an enemy of the church. So just something uh, historical to, to keep in mind. And then Saul is named last. Saul, remember, was also, uh, was he a Jew or Gentile? He was a Jew. He was a Jew. Remember, Saul was a Jew. He was, he was actually trained in rabbinical schools. Um, and in some of his letters, he kind of gives his pedigree. He tells about where he, how he was trained and how he has all this Jewish background. And so you have these men, all this diversity, yet they functioned as one. This verse serves as a picture of what God created the church to be. And, and as I look around in our room and as I think about our church here, maybe it's not this diverse, but maybe it is. I don't know everybody's background. But we have a wide diversity of people within the local church, yet we're all united in Christ. And we're all working together for that same goal, to spread the gospel, to show love to others, and to encourage one another. So what a great start as we start off with um, this, this verse giving us this picture of unity despite the diversity. Um, it's important as we move forward. Um, We talked about the order of names. Remember that whenever the apostles are listed in the gospel accounts, whose name always comes first in the list of the apostles? Peter does because Peter was the leader of the group. He becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. If you go back into the Old Testament, you see lists of names. Often the eldest is listed first. Uh, Remember when Joseph's brothers came back to Egypt to buy grain and he was hadn't revealed himself yet and he brings them in to eat with them remember how he seats them at the table from oldest to youngest and they're all going how does he know this because they don't know it's their brother yet uh, and so you have these lists of names and so probably um, Barnabas is listed first because he was the leader of this group remember it was Barnabas that recruited Saul so he had the authority to go and recruit other teachers to join the team he had possibly recruited these other men as well. So we see him as, as a leader. Moving on to verse number two. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
So remember back in the Old Testament, God separated a specific tribe to serve in the tabernacle and the temple. Who remembers what tribe that was? The tribe of Levi. And this is exactly what God told Moses. Separate to me the Levites to serve in, in the tabernacle. So now the spirit is, it's not service in the tabernacle. It's serving the Lord in the church. And so we have this calling out. So God separates. And, and we're going to see God is taking the initiative through this passage. God is the one directing. The spirit is the one directing and, and guiding. And so God separates. He calls out these two men for the specific work to, for which I have called them. Um, I really believe that Barnabas and Saul had been kindled in their hearts to serve the Lord this way. Uh, I don't think it was, oh, I had no idea that God was going to call me to do this. I, I really believe that these men um, were preparing for whatever God had next. Notice at the beginning of the verse, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. These men were devout in their service to the Lord. They were willing to continue to stay busy using their spiritual gifts in their local church, waiting for, to see what God would do next. So many times we look at the will of God and, we, and it's always, not always, but often it seems like it's a mystery. And I've heard people say this, well, I just don't know what God's will is. Well, first of all, uh, yes, there's no Bible verse that gives us direct, specific, practical, daily um, instructions as to life decisions. Uh, it doesn't tell us where to live or what job to take, etc. But when we ask the question, what is God's will? The answer is God's will is God's word. And these men knew this. They were busy ministering to the Lord, and they were willing to even go into seasons of fasting uh, fasting is not just, you know, skipping a meal here or there um, to be pious. Uh, when they were fasting, it was to be able to focus all their focus and all their attention on God, to spend specific time praying, setting it aside, um, not allowing themselves the indulgence of food so that they could focus on God. So it was just a shift in priorities, a shift in focus. And these men were busy. They had, they had learned what their spiritual gift was. They, had de they were developing their spiritual gifts, and they were deploying them into their local church. This is an example of how we're supposed to be living. God has given every Christian at least one, if not more, spiritual gifts. They're not of us. They're of the Spirit. And our job is to understand and learn what those gifts are, to, to develop them because they come in raw. They come in untrained. It's not just this magical um, thing that just kind of poof, it comes on and all of a sudden um, that spiritual gift is right up where it you know, has potential to be. It needs to be developed. And that's what these men were doing. They were developing their gifts. Barnabas and Saul were developing their spiritual gifts of ministry. And, and they were fasting and they were serving and they were busy in their local church. They weren't just sitting around waiting for something great to happen. They were getting busy and diving into the work. And so this is another practical example of uh, what God is asking us to do. Um, the Spirit says, I want them now, now that, that they've been ministering, they've been fasting, they've been uh, faithful 
They've been faithful servants. Now I'm going to call them to go and do something different. Um, And we're going to see what that is as we move forward. Verse number three, then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So the believers respond to the spirit in obedience and they do three things. They have a time of fasting. Uh, Before it mentioned fasting, that was on a routine basis. This fasting is specifically uh, regarding the call of the spirit. They said, we believe the spirit is calling us. Let's fast. Let's put aside food and all the distractions of life and let's just focus on God for a a season of of prayer, a season of focus on the Lord. So they fasted. This is a time of intense worship. All normal activities cease and only worship is done, only prayer. So they're anticipating God's working. So they fast after the call. The next thing they do after the call is pray. And those probably go hand in hand. As they're fasting, they're praying. As they're praying, they're fasting. They're begging God to show him, the, show them the specific uh, will, the direction, that the work, actually, that he mentioned already in verse 2. And then they lay hands on them. This was uh, what people do today. We, we have commissioning services for missionaries and pastors and other people going into ministry. And you'll see um, leaders in the church and pastors and, and uh, people laying hands on them as they send them out. It's, it's a way of commissioning and um, showing support for the specific uh, individual. So, uh, in fact, one, one of our missionaries, not from our church, a uh, different missionary was, was here on one occasion and was about to go into a very difficult field. And he had asked for prayer. And we actually had our men come up here and lay hands on him. And uh, not, not because it, like, you know, gives some kind of, like, magical, um, you know, power to him through hands. It's not, it's not what it is. It's just uh, a symbolic gesture that says we approve and, and we're behind you and we're going to keep praying for you. And I think that's what these uh, these. Uh, church members in Antioch were saying to Barnabas and Saul, they gathered around them, they laid their hands on them and said, go in the power of the Spirit. We support you. We love you. We are going to be praying for you, and we're looking forward to when you come back and tell us uh, what happened. So it wasn't necessarily an ordination. It was a symbol of the congregation's endorsement of these two men that they believed the Holy Spirit had called out. So what a powerful start to the chapter. We're only three verses in. Let's see what happens next. So verse four, being sent out by the Holy Spirit. It, and they were sent out by the church in a sense. They, they had laid hands and sent them out, but it was the Spirit that was leading. And again, God is taking initiative. He's doing the work. He's, he's the one that's doing the sending. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So they need to get to Cyprus. Cyprus is their goal. We're going to see that in a couple of verses. This is the work God had called them to, was to go to Cyprus, and there's a route that they're going to follow. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us if the route was pre-planned or if they just kind of went, and as the Spirit led them, they moved to the next city. Um, I'm not going to speculate because the, the, the text doesn't give us that, that detail, uh, but they knew where their first stop was at least, and that was to go to Cyprus. Um, this choice is another indicator that, remember, who, who of the group is from Cyprus? Barnabas. So 
it probably made a lot of logical sense to go to Cyprus. Barnabas had family there. He had contacts there. He knew, uh, he knew the roads. He knew the train. He knew the, the danger, dangerous roads and the safe roads. He knew how to get around. Um, he, he, was, he had an inn there already. And so uh, it made sense to say, look, we love what's going on here in Antioch. We love seeing what God is doing. I want to take, and I think this was maybe some of the the kindling that went on in Barnabas' heart was, I want to take what we're doing here and I want to replicate it in my hometown in Cyprus. And that's exactly what missionaries do today. It's replication. Discipleship is replication. Uh, What God is doing in one place, we want to replicate that in other places. So again, another indicator that Barnabas was likely the leader um, of of the two in the group. We call this... Paul's first missionary journey, um, but it starts out really as Barnabas and Saul's um, as he led them. <clears throat> Excuse me. So they go down to Seleucia, so they, they leave Antioch, they go about 16 miles downstream, down the Orontes River. It comes down to the Mediterranean. They have to go to Seleucia because that's where the port is, because they have to get a boat, obviously, to go to the island of Cyprus. That was about a 60 mile um, trip by boat across the water. Uh, and so um, we go to the next verse here. When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues, plural, the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. So let's break this verse down a little bit. Here's a map to kind of show um, that that red line is kind of a zoomed out view of, of the first trip. So they leave uh, Antioch and Seleucia up in the right corner there. They traveled down to uh, the, the island of Cyprus and to the city of Salam, Salamis. So this is the route they traveled. This is where those maps in the back of your Bibles come in really handy. Does anyone ever look at the maps in the back of their Bibles? Oh my goodness. I can't believe all the hands. That's so great. Great. I thought there would be like almost no hands. So that's awesome. Um, those of you that didn't raise your hands, check it out. Maybe your Bible doesn't have maps. I don't know. But it's very helpful. Um, here's another view of it. So uh, just to give a little bit, it's a little cleaner uh, close-up. So they leave Seleucia 60 miles down to Salamis. Now, I want to break for a moment. I want to talk about um, uh, an app that allows you to study the Bible um, geographically. It has a very original name. It's called Bible Map. Um, this particular one only works with um, iOS devices. There is another Bible map app for Android devices. I don't have a picture of it up here, but I wanted to show you this one because I think this is a cool, this is a cool thing. Um, as you're studying scripture and as you're, there, it's, the Bible often names all these cities and towns and regions and stuff, and it can get confusing. Um, even if you know the Bible really well, it's hard to always keep it straight, especially in Acts where there's city after city named, and then some of them aren't cities, they're regions, and what's the difference? So what this map does, and here's a close-up. Um, this is a screenshot from my phone. So you type in a, um, a, a passage, and I did Acts 13, because that's what we're going to study tonight. And all the little red pins there are locations in the Mediterranean region where uh, that are mentioned in Acts 13. So 
and you can see the um, the passages there. You can read the Bible. There actually has Bible in this app, so you can read the Bible in the app as well. And then it has listings of cities, of archaeological discoveries and things. But on the picture on the right there is if you zoom in to one of those red pins and you tap on it, you get a, a title and a little information circle, a little eye in it. You tap that, and that picture below there is a modern-day picture of whatever location that you're studying. So in this case, that picture is modern-day Salamis. And then it gives you below there some information about that city. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I thought it was interesting. Um, there is a lot of great technology. There's a lot of bad stuff on the internet, but there's just so many good things like this that um, we should take advantage of, I think. So if you have any questions, you can talk to me later. But um, here's another view. So they're coming into Salamis. We're going to see them cut across Cyprus and then head north, and hopefully we'll um, get there tonight. Let's get back to our text. Um, actually, I want to go back to where we were um, at Salamis. So that Salamis is their first port, or their first entry, their first um, area of ministry. So it says that when they arrived, that they preached. They preached. That word means to proclaim, to make public announcements. And what were they preaching? They were preaching the word of God. They were uh, sharing the scriptures, which at this time, would have been really the Old Testament. Um, I don't believe that any of the New Testament was, was written quite yet, or at least not in circulation. And so they are um, preaching. Who do you think they were preaching about? Jesus, the Messiah. And, and they were using the Old Testament to do it. So don't let anyone tell you that Jesus is not in the Old Testament. He's all through the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies, and, and we can see that as we compare what happened in his life when we look at what the prophets wrote. Um, they could have also been teaching some of Jesus' teachings. Remember, um, from when, when Saul was converted on the road to Damascus till now, several years have transpired. And Saul spent many, uh, I don't know how many years, but a lot of time with Peter and the other apostles who were the eyewitnesses. And they would have been teaching Saul um, about Jesus and what Jesus said and what he said on the Sermon on the Mount and about his parables and the things that he taught them while he was on earth. Um, Paul also spent some time in the wilderness where the Lord himself taught and worked with him. And so um, I don't know that it was 100% just Old Testament. I really believe some of Jesus' teachings were part of this as well. And they're preaching in the synagogues of the Jews. So um, this audience now is strictly the national Jews and the Gentile proselytes. There might have been some Gentiles there as well. We'll see that when they get off of out of the island and back to the mainland, um, hopefully later tonight. But um, this was the pattern that we're going to see Paul continue to use whenever he enters a new region that has a synagogue. If it has a synagogue, he's going to go there first. He's preaching about Jesus, who was a Jew, who was the Jewish Messiah. And so it, the gospel is to the who first? To the Jew first, and then to the Greek or the Gentile. So that's the pattern of ministry that we're going to see um, Paul using as he goes on his, on his journeys, on his missionary uh, trips. 
Um, I also want to mention, it already mentions, um, actually in this verse, that they had John as their assistant. So um, this John is, is John Mark, who we have met earlier in the book of Acts. He actually shows up in the gospel of Mark, who, and he was the one to, to write that. This is the John Mark that wrote the gospel of Mark that we have in our Bibles. Um, he shows up in his own gospel, not by name, but actually many believe it is him at least, um, there's a scene in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark where um, there's a young man and something kind of awkward and embarrassing happens to him in the garden. So, and I, I'm not going to give it away. So you can look it up. Go find Mark. It's only 16 chapters long. Go to the Garden of Gethsemane passage in Mark and look and see what happens. That guy, that, you'll, that young man that you read about is probably John Mark himself. And so uh, they bring John Mark in a few chapters ago. Barnabas and Saul went down to Jerusalem to take a gift from the church at Antioch down. And when they come back to Antioch, they bring John Mark with them. Um, also, we know that John Mark is related to Barnabas. They're cousins. And so there's a family connection there as well. So they have John as their assistant. So when they were sent out from Antioch, uh, Barnabas and Saul, the, the leaders laid their hands on those two men, they were the ones sent out to do the preaching. They were the ones commissioned to go on this trip, but they were able to bring John Mark along as their assistant. And so uh, he, he comes along. Um, the word assistant there, um, it, there's been, they've, I, I didn't realize it was a big deal, but apparently um, the commentators talk a lot about what did he do? Did he do the baptizing? Did he, did he keep the records? Really, it doesn't tell us. So we're just going to say, he did whatever they needed him to do. He was their, their helper, and that was his role. And so um, that's what he did. Um, there was wisdom, with going back to the synagogues, there was wisdom in going to the, to the synagogues. Number one, it gave priority to the, in that generation to the Jews receiving the gospel first. We mentioned that already. Uh, Romans 1.16 talks about that, several other verses. Um, Gentiles that were in the synagogues would be a fruitful field for sowing the gospel because they would already be acquainted with the Old Testament and its anticipation of the Messiah. So not only the Jews, but the Gentiles that were there learning had been learning about the, the, the things in the Old Testament about Christ. So those are reasons why that made sense to go to the synagogues first um, and proclaim and preach the gospel. Um, Make sure I got everything that I wanted to say there. So again, Barnabas and, and Saul, they, they get to Salamis. They go in, into the synagogues. Um, there was a large Jewish population in Salamis. That's why there were multiple synagogues. So they, they didn't just go to one. They traveled through the whole region and all the different uh, synagogues preaching and teaching. So let's move forward now in verse number six. They leave Salamis. We don't get a lot of report from Luke about what happened there. How did the Jews respond? He just kind of leaves us um, in the dark on that. And actually, remember, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, so um, we didn't need to know. Uh, verse number six. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So now the team travels west. They go all the way to the other far side of the island. Again, Luke says nothing about what happened in between. Did they stop and minister at villages? What, what kind of things happened? We're not told. But it was about between 90 and 100 miles to get from one end to the other. So it probably took some time to do that. They trekked across. Um, but Luke moves right to this next big event, the meeting with the sorcerer and the proconsul. So this sorcerer, we're told, is a Jewish man. That's an important aspect. We need to, that's important that we know that. And that he was a false prophet. So he was attempting to teach truth or to foretell things, but he had no authority from God to do that. The word sorcerer uh, could describe a counselor or honorable gentleman. Um, If you remember back in Matthew's gospel, there are some men from the east that come to bring gifts to Christ. Um, That same word is used, of course, it's translated magi in Matthew, but it's the same word used here. So it could refer to someone that's honorable or it could refer to a fraudulent wizard as it does here in Acts uh, 13.6. It's related to the verb practice sorcery. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 8, there was another guy named Simon who was also a sorcerer. He was someone that um, was a deceiver. Now the name there, Bar-Jesus, means literally son of Jesus or son of the Savior. That's going to come into play in a a couple verses. Um, And then you have Sergius Paulus. He was a proconsul. Proconsuls were governors appointed by the Roman Senate. So he had quite a bit of authority. Um, If the Senate of Rome appointed him there, that um, was a town that they had authority over. They had jurisdiction, and they would send a proconsul as their representative to be the governor of that area. Um, you had proconsuls, and you also had procurators. Both are mentioned in the Bible. It's two different um, appointed positions. The proconsul was a governor appointed by the Senate. The procurator on the other hand, was appointed by the Roman emperor. So there's the distinction there. There are three Judean, Judea, I should say, procurators mentioned in the New Testament. Pontius Pilate was a procurator. Sorry if I can't pronounce that right. Uh, Antonius Felix and Porcius Festus. These were all procurators. They were appointed by the emperor. Um, But this man, Paulus, was appointed by the Senate of Rome. Um, It also says that he was an intelligent man. So he had a a mind to learn. He he wanted to, to learn, and we see that in the fact that he calls for Barnabas and Saul. So it kind of leads us to believe that just like they were doing in the previous town, they come into Paphos, They're going into synagogues. They're preaching. They're proclaiming the word of the Lord. Word gets back to Sergius Paulus, and he says, 
I want to know what they're talking about because it was probably causing quite a stir, just like everywhere they went. And so he invites them in. He, um, he was an intelligent man. He wanted to learn. And he wanted to, he, it says he sought to hear the word of God. Do you remember Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion that wanted to hear the word of God? And what did God do? He sent Peter. And then they, they all believe on Christ. And so we don't have a, a dialogue here where Sergius Paulus has, uh, is praying and has an angel come and visit him like happened with Cornelius. Um, but we, we have the same mind. We have the same heart that's hungry for God. Um, and so God responds to that by sending Barnabas and Paul to preach to him. And I think this might give us a glimpse. Um, some Christians and even unbelievers ask, well, you know, if, if the gospel is so important, what about those out in, um, you know, really remote jungle regions or places where there's not um, internet or whatever? How do they hear about the gospel? Well, I believe that when there's a hunger, God is going to send someone. Um, I believe the message is going to go out. And I think this is a picture of it. Here's a man in authority, this proconsul. He is, but he's hungry. He has seen all that Rome has to offer. He's seen all that the Greek pantheon has to offer. He's not satisfied with it. He's hungry for something more. He's figured out that there's got to be something more than what, um, what these gods and goddesses can offer me. I want something more. There's a hunger for God. And so God responds. Um, and he asked them to come. And again, notice the order of the names in verse 7. This man called for Barnabas and Saul. So again, name order is probably important. Barnabas is continuing to lead them as they, as they go here. Um, Alumus is actually how you pronounce um, that name. Uh, that's his Greek name. And it's probably translated from a word for magician or sorcerer. And notice what he does. Alumus the sorcerer withstood them. So Sergius Paulus says, I'm hungry for something more. I'm hearing about these guys talk about God and the, the Jewish God and this Messiah, this Jesus of Nazareth. I want to hear more about that. He invites them in. He's sitting there, uh, and he's got this sorcerer over here uh, in his court. And as soon as these men start to proclaim Barnabas and Saul start to proclaim this guy steps in and starts to interrupt he starts to withstand them he starts to put them down he's telling Sergius not to listen um, he's withstanding the message uh, the word withstood there it means to be in opposition to or to set oneself against and so um, here this man had been deceiving think about his position um, he must have had a pretty high regard or was looked upon with high regard by Sergius in order to have the boldness to step up and try to interrupt something going on in Sergius's court. And I really believe that this sorcerer, this deceiver, um, was using his position for personal gain. And when he sees these men come in, he's like, man, my cash cow is going away. I've got to do something to stop this. Not to mention the spiritual opposition. Because was Satan happy about um, a proconsul having the gospel preached to him in the Roman Empire? No way. So you have, you have the spiritual, I believe, um, going on as well. The spiritual battle, the spiritual warfare. 
So he's setting himself in opposition. This is the same word that's used in 2 Timothy 3.8 when Paul recalls what happened back in the Exodus. Do you remember that Moses and Aaron go to stand before Pharaoh, and what do they say to him? Let my people go, right? And so, of course, he agrees, and so then, um, but then he changes his mind, so a plague comes, and he agrees, and there's a cycle. And Janus and Jambres, these men were were the magicians in the court of Pharaoh. So when Moses and Aaron come in to present their case, their message from Yahweh, these are the magicians in Pharaoh's court that resist them. Do you remember when um, the staff was thrown down? What did it turn into? A snake. And do you remember the Egyptian magicians did the same thing, right? And their staffs also turned into snakes, except for what happened to their snakes? Got eaten up by the one that was from Moses' staff, right? So these are the men that were doing that. And so you have a parallel here in Paphos to Egypt. You have a Gentile pagan king in both, a a ruler, a a position of authority, a pharaoh and a proconsul. You have two men coming in to proclaim truth to him. You have Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. You have Barnabas and Saul to Sergius. And then you have those that are opposing the message. Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, and this Alumus opposes Barnabas and Saul. So we have this parallel account. I'm not saying that we should build a theology from this. I'm not saying that this affects um, our understanding of the Bible in, in any other way other than it gives us a pattern for what the enemies of God do, and they still do today. When the word is shared, especially with those in, in critical positions of authority, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be resistance. The devil does not want government officials understanding the gospel. He doesn't want that happening. He doesn't want those with power and influence to understand what the Bible has to say and how that Jesus loves them. So there's, there's a pattern here, and I think that helps us understand it. This word withstood can also be used in a positive way. Paul uses the same word in Ephesians 6 when he tells us to take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. So this is a powerful word. It's used both positively and negatively um, throughout the scripture. As we go into verse number nine, we see another transition um, about to happen. So we have this phrase here that I've bolded. It says, then Saul, who is also called Paul, from this point on, Saul is never used again. And it's only Paul. This is, where the, this is where the change happens. So far, he's been called Saul most of the time and Paul sometimes. Now Saul is going to go away and Paul is going to remain. Um, Paul is Saul's Roman name. And what regions are they ministering in specifically? Now they're going into Jewish synagogues, but overall the Mediterranean world, with the exception of Israel, is, is, is a Jew or Gentile. 
It's Gentile. So I believe that's one of the reasons the Roman name gets used because they're going into Gentile regions. Um, I think there's another transition here. We're going to see a shift in leadership and we're going to talk about that more as we move forward. But they're there with Sergius and Alumas is resisting them. He's trying to stop them. He's interrupting them. He's, he's fighting against them verbally. And Paul is not having it. Actually, the spirit of God is not having it. Because notice that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens when we put our faith in Christ. That happens automatically. The Spirit comes to indwell. This is the empowerment, the supernatural empowerment of the Spirit. We're told in the New Testament, Paul even writes, two Christians be filled with the Spirit. So it's not an automatic thing that every Christian is filled with the Spirit. We're indwelled with him. We're not necessarily filled with him. It means to give complete control to, to let him control everything that we do and everything that we say. And we can move in and out of being filled with the Spirit and not being filled with the Spirit, I think, in a moment. We can go from Spirit-filled words to flesh words, I think, and a turn of a dime because we're still battling that sinful nature. Well, Paul doesn't let this sorcerer distract him from his mission. He decides to give himself, he's surrendering to the spirit right here. This is what's happening. He's, this is not, this is Paul doing this, but it, it is in accord with the spirit's control over him. So keep the spirit in mind. Don't lose sight of him as we move forward. It says he looked intently at him, this withering gaze, piercing him. I don't know if you've ever had someone look at you with that kind of intensity, but it usually makes the mouth slow down because you're like, what is up with this guy staring at me? Um, it, it, it silences what's going on. Paul is he's under control of the spirit. He's giving him this this look he's saying just this nonverbal communication and, and they say nonverbal communication is like what 90% of what we do so this is a powerful expression and then he says to him oh full of all deceit and all fraud you son of the devil you enemy of all righteousness will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the lord he brings the heat on Illumis. He steps in and silences him. Let's look at some of the things that he says. Full of all deceit and all fraud. You're a fake. You're a phony. You're a false prophet, and I'm calling you out on it. And as we know about Paul, as he grows in his faith, Um, And as he matures in Christ, he becomes a bold witness. Now, I don't think he ever did it, you know, especially we've been studying 2 Corinthians Sunday morning, and we've been talking about how to deal with a a brother or sister that falls into sin and is is 
repenting and wants to come back and how we're supposed to love them. So I think Paul had a, uh, he was a very loving, joyful man, but when it was time to get real and serious, he was not afraid to do that. Uh, for those of us like myself that tries to avoid conflict at all costs, this is very convicting to say, okay, Holy Spirit, you, you have control. I'm going to say the words that need to be said under your control, but this is not comfortable. I don't know that this was really that comfortable for him in this moment, but it, he said what needed to be said. He's been deceiving. Now think about Sergius Paulus is still sitting here this whole time. He's watching all this go on. And I can't imagine what's going through his mind. Wait, this guy's a deceiver? I've been trusting him. He's a fraud? I've been believing him. God is revealing some truth to Sergius and to Illumis. I think both of these men, I know both of these men need Christ. They both need to get saved. Um, the sorcerer gets the harsh um, response. The proconsul is the audience. But they're both watching the same thing go on. And then he calls him, you son of the devil. What does, remember what his name was? Bar Jesus, which means what? Son of the Savior. You, this, is, this pun was intended by Paul. He's flipping that, that name. You, are, you call yourself son of uh, Bar Jesus, but you are Bar Satan. You are Bar Devil. You are a son of the, of the devil. Remember, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He said, you are like your father, the devil, and I am like my father. And he was making that distinction. I don't have the verse in front of me, so I'll, I'll, I, I can't quote it, but that, it's, it's very similar language. Um, so he, he calls him son of the devil, and then he says, you enemy of all unrighteousness. I'm sorry, you enemy, thank you, of all righteousness. Everything that's good, you're opposing. What had Paul and Barnabas been saying to Sergius? They've been giving him the gospel. They've been telling him about this Jesus of Nazareth that came and lived and died on a Roman cross, was buried in a tomb, and rose again from the dead three days later. They were giving him the gospel, the truth, the power of salvation. And it says that this man was opposing them. So you enemy of all righteousness, you enemy of the righteous truth of Jesus, of God himself. Will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? So this, this man, this man that was involved in sorcery, exercising power by the help and control of demons, had led him into all kinds of distortion, deception of others, deception of himself, distortion of the truth. Um, Jesus said that Satan was the father of what? Lies. And when he speaks, he speaks his native language, which is, is lies. That's what the devil speaks whenever he speaks. You and I speak English, I think, for the most part. Satan speaks lies. And so this man had be, begun to, to live. His whole life was a lie. And he says, you have been perverting the straight ways of the Lord. It, this is a present active participle. 
in the Greek. It describes the actual work of a Loomis as a perverter or distorter. It basically is saying, will you not cease perverting the right ways of the Lord? Remember when John the Baptist came. What was his mission? He was calling Israel to make straight the paths. He was the forebearer of Christ. He was preparing Israel for their Messiah to come. Make straight the ways of the Lord. This was a call that went out in the ancient world when a king would, was preparing to come through a region. And if the road did this, they actually brought crews in and literally straightened the roads because it was safer not to have all those twists and turns. And if you've got this long entourage like these kings uh, went with, it was much easier to go on a straight road than to get everybody turning back and forth. And so this parade route, if you will, was set up. And, and John the Baptist was doing that at the heart level. He was straightening and making level the path so that when Jesus came, the people would be ready. What he's saying here is that Alumus is doing the opposite of that. He's taking what is straight and trying to bend it and twist it and turn it and distort it. So it gives us a very sobering, powerful picture of the depth of the depravity of this bar Jesus. And as I stated before, Alumus has many successors. One of the commentators said that. There are still people, there has been since this time, and even today, that are not ceasing to pervert the straight ways of the Lord. This is why it's so important that we know our Bibles, that we're in the Word, that we're reading and studying God's Word for ourselves so that we know that we can stand up when we're approached by a false teacher, by a cult uh, individual. We can say, I believe, and this is why, and I know my Bible, and I can't be dissuaded from, from, uh, from the truth into your falsehood. Paul continues in verse 11, and now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So Paul was filled by the Spirit. And now it's very evident that the Spirit is indeed filling him. Because could Paul have made Illumis blind in his own power? We don't have that kind of power in ourselves. There's no human. I can't say to John, you're going to be blind for a time and he's... We can't do that. This is evidence that the Spirit was indeed filling um, Paul. And, and this is a, a temporary blindness. Um, who was another guy that had to experience temporary blindness for a short time? Saul of Tarsus, right? And so I'm not saying there's a, definitely a connection there. There is some differences and there's some similarities. Paul's blindness was assigned to him that God was calling him into service. Uh, Illumis was being punished uh, for his sin of resisting the word of God. 
Um, but there's, there's some pictures here in this, what, what's going on here. Alumus, was he a Gentile or a Jew? He was a Jew. And now he's blind. There's a, there's a metaphor, if you will. I, I think that's the right word. As the church age progresses over the next several chapters in Acts, there's still going to be Jews getting saved, and the gospel's always open to them. But this is a picture of their blindness, their spiritual blindness. And as God turns to the Gentiles, it is a judgment on the Jews of this day. They rejected and rejected and rejected. They rejected their Messiah when he walked on earth, and they continued to reject his apostles. And so the Lord opens the door and already has been, but now more than ever. And so it was a picture of the Jewish blindness to the gospel. I think it's also a picture of of his heart, right? He was blind to to the he had spiritual blindness. Um, why did the Spirit use Paul to give blindness? Um, I think possibly it it harkens back to Saul's own blindness, and maybe it was a way an attempt to try to reach the heart of Alumus and try to get him to realize that you're going in the wrong direction. You were a fraud and a fraudulent wizard, and now you have met real power. Now you have encountered the the true and living God, and you are struck blind because of it. So we're not told whatever happens with him, like we are, of course, with with Saul. Um, I'm Eventually, he, according to this, um, he says, not seeing the sun for a time. So it was a temporary blindness. But I don't, I don't, I'm sure he never forgot this event, right? I don't think he was allowed to be um, in the court anymore. So he had to go find a, a different way of living. So my prayer is that he did eventually turn to Christ, but we're not told. Um, and so notice that a dark mist fell on him. He went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand and just because I think these little phrases in Scripture are interesting. Back in nine, uh, Acts 9, 8, uh, when Saul um, could not see, they led him by the hand. So just some of the phrases. I find these things interesting when you see repeated phrases. Um, again, this is not a theological doctrinal thing. I just find it interesting. Um, so... The blindness comes, and then in verse 12, we have this wonderful result of all of this. Then the proconsul believed. He had watched, he had been listening to the gospel. He had watched this amazing event happen. One of his most trusted advisors has been, is being you know, assaulted verbally and, and cut down and stopped and silenced and actually made blind right in front of him. And he chooses to put his faith in Jesus of Nazareth. He believed. Why did he believe? Well, he believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. 
his mind was blown. Remember, he was an intelligent man. He was hungry for, for something different. He was hungry for the word of God. He had had enough of the religion and the social uh, status of the Greco-Roman culture that he was steeped in. It, he, he was coming up empty. His spiritual throat was still dry. He was thirsty for something true, something real. And God sends uh, Barnabas and Paul to give it to him. And so he believes. He's this high-ranking official, probably one of the highest, if not the highest-ranking official in this region, becomes a believer. You think he kept that to himself? No way. Um. When, when we think about the, uh, when we think about Cornelius, who did he bring around in his home when Peter was coming? Right? His whole family and friends and everyone he could. Uh, the Philippian jailer, who we'll read about later in Acts, his whole family becomes believers. And that, that's, I believe, because he gathered them around and said, you guys got to hear this. So I, I have no doubt that uh, the proconsul here did, did the same. Um, he believed when he saw the power of God. He heard the good news that Jesus loved him. That, that, that God was a personal God, not this deity that, that I have to try to please so that he blesses my crops or gives me safe journey across the sea or whatever. So in the Pantheon, you had to, um, whatever you were about to do, whether it was a business deal or, or you wanted to conceive a child or uh, you wanted to have safety, or you wanted your fields to have a good crop. You had to go to the right temple to do with that issue. And you had to make certain sacrifices to that god or goddess that, that was over that realm of life. And they, weren't, they were impersonal deities. And you only wanted to be involved the gods at that point. Otherwise, the Greeks and Romans, they really weren't interested in a, in a personal god. It, that wasn't part of the culture. That wasn't how their religion worked. But now he hears that there's a God who is the God of all, that is the almighty God, and he loves me, and he's personally interested in, in me, and, and, and now I can know him. This is unlike any other God that Sergius Paulus has ever heard of. And so... He is, his mind is blown. He cannot believe. Well, actually, he can believe, and he does. Um, Some other takeaways from this incident. This marks the beginning of Paul's leadership in the journey. Remember, so far, who has been leading, based on the text? Barnabas. But it's Saul who the Spirit fills and makes this indictment against Illumis, and causes the blindness through Paul to happen. And so this marks the beginning of Paul's leadership. Um, When we get to verse 13, it will be even more emphasized. From this point on, the ministry took an even more decidedly Gentile slant. It's gradually moving from ministry to Jews to Jewish proselytes to Gentiles. It's gradually happening. It's not happening quickly. But from this point on, the needle is pointing more to the, to the Gentiles. 
in, in terms of how their ministry is going to carry forward. It's also filled with figurative nuances. We touched on these earlier. Um, so the proconsul, remember what his name was? Sergius what? Paulus. So you have a Gentile with the name similar to Paul accepting the message while Alumus, who was a Jew, opposed it. And again, we, we did talk about this earlier. The Jews' blindness pictured the judicial blinding of Israel. So Luke, remember Luke is writing this, and he's emphasizing the transitional nature of the book of Acts. So on one hand, the Gentiles become more and more the primary object of the gospel. Not that Jews can't be saved. They certainly can be. But, but the shift is gradually going toward Gentile ministry. Um, and on the other hand, God temporarily turns from the Jews. That's a judgment on them for rejecting their Messiah. So Acts is filled with all these little pivots, all these little uh, doors that swing open. And, and Jesus, remember, he predicted this. It would start in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts. And it would happen in that region. And that's exactly how, that is an outline really of the book of Acts. And I know we've covered that already, but just to point that out, there are multiple um, transitions in Acts, and this is one of them as we go into the next verse. Um, A couple notes about this astonishment. And this is why I believe it wasn't just Old Testament. It says, at the teaching of the Lord. I really believe he's talking about the teaching of Christ. And so not only are they giving him the Old Testament prophecies and teachings, but how Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled those. And even some of the things that Jesus taught while he was on earth. Um, One reason I believe that is because the language is very similar to what we see in the gospel accounts, especially the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So in Matthew 7, 28, it says that the people were astonished at Jesus' Uh, sayings, his teachings. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. They were astonished at what they heard. In 2233, the multitudes again were astonished at his teaching. In Mark 1.22, the same phrase is used. And in Mark 11.18, the scribes, the chief priests, they want to destroy him, but they fear the people. Why? Because all the people were astonished at his teaching. There's other examples too, right out of Luke actually. Uh, but many were parallel passages. But we see this phrase, and I think that's why Luke uses it on purpose, to tell us that some of the teaching came from Jesus and what he said while he walked uh, on earth. All right. Well, we have time for, um, we're going to be done at 45. So we got time, I think, for one more little section here. Verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga, and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So I think we'll just stop at verse 13 and just make some comments there. So here's the map, again, to show you. So they come down to Salamis, they go to Paphos, then they get in another boat, they head up back to the mainland, and they enter the region of Pamphylia and the city specifically of Perga. And something happens there. Um, First of all, notice how it's worded, now when Paul and his party. 
Up till now, it's been Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. And now, no more, no more Saul. It's Paul from here on out. In fact, the only time you, you see Saul used is when he is talking about his experience on the road to Damascus where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Besides that, it's Paul, 100%. But notice that it says Paul and his party. Um, Paul and his companions is another way of saying it. It doesn't even name Barnabas here. It's just Paul and his companions. They set sail. Um, I just want to make a comment about Barnabas as we, as we think about this. I think that and if, if, as we next week, we're going to pick up right here at verse 14, at 15 too, because I want to talk about John leaving them next week. But just think about this situation and put yourself in Barnabas' shoes. He's been the leader. He was probably the leader back in Antioch of Syria. He's the one that recruited Saul. A couple of different times he brought him when nobody else wanted him. And then he brings him down to Antioch and says, come and minister with us. So Paul gets, he cuts his teeth of ministry there in Antioch. And he's serving. And Barnabas is leading the group. And they're moving forward and they're growing. Barnabas had been in senior leadership within the growing, growing church. Um, and, and he had recruited Paul, brought him to Antioch. He actually personally traveled and went and got him and had to look around to find him. It, it took him some time and brings him back. And Barnabas has been leading the group up until this point. There's at least three of them. There could have been a couple more based on the phrase, his party. So we know it's Barnabas, Paul, and John Mark, and there could have been others that were there to assist, but it could have just been the three as well. In any case, Barnabas has been the leader, and now there seems to be a, a role change going on. And had Barnabas been living in his flesh, this could have derailed the entire ministry and derailed the rest of the missions trip. But when you see, and we'll see it next week, the success and, and the power that these men have as they go into these next regions and continue to minister, I don't believe Barnabas saw this as a threat or something to be upset about. I believe Barnabas was filled with joy to see this happening. I think this is what he was hoping for all along, which is why he kept trying to get Paul. He saw something in him. God revealed something and said, this man is going to do great things for God. And I'm just going to keep bringing him into situations and giving him experiences, and I'm going to see God do something in his life. And when Paul fills with the Holy Spirit and he stands up against that sorcerer, Everyone's watching that. And I think Barnabas said, I think now it's finally happening. This is good. He's excited. He's seeing this happen. This is the purpose of discipleship. It's the purpose of its replication. It's not about one person over another. Jesus said, don't lord over each other like the Gentiles do. Be a servant leader. And that's exactly what Barnabas is doing. He is living out a servant leadership. One last slide. I saw this on social media and I had to show it. Yesterday was Valentine's Day. Hopefully you got a Valentine. If you didn't, just open up your Bible to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave 
his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As we close, I don't know who's listening online, and I don't know everybody in the room, but if you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would extend the offer again. God called out to Sergius Paulus tonight as we read, and he answered the call, and he believed. Will you also put your faith and trust in Christ? If you have not done so, please consider the claims of Christ and what he can do to transform your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for this night. I thank you for your word. I thank you for Acts 13 and for all the, um, the truth and the wonderful insights that you've given to us from it. Lord, I pray that we'd go out of here encouraged. Help us to follow the pattern that we see in, in Saul and Barnabas. Help us to be filled with the Spirit uh, over the next days and weeks and months. Lord, help us to encourage one another and not be threatened by uh, you working in one person's life in a different way than you're doing in ours. Help us to celebrate the spiritual victories that, each, that we see in others. Lord, and I pray that if there's anyone that does not know you as Savior, that they would see the truth of the gospel, that they would respond in faith to Jesus Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.